So I did a lot, a lot, a lot of research assistance work. And I remember like I had peers, as in people who were pursuing academic careers, who uh, looked at me like I was some sort of sucker, like a fire, you know, that I'm doing all these, you know, menial labor type things. But come on, I mean, it was fantastic experience. Like, I, first of all, it just showed people that I'm serious. And also I gained so much experience doing all these you know, uh, laborious sort of academic uh, chores and tasks that um, a lot of people don't get experience working in. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, What Are You Going To Do With That?, of the Minerva Center for the Rule of Law Under Extreme Conditions at the University of Haifa. I am Dani, I'm a PhD candidate, and I'm looking for some advice from peers through getting to know the academic journey that they've had so far. In today's episode, I'm going back to my roots, so to say, because our guest Dr. Omri Grinberg is an anthropologist and a postdoctoral fellow at our Minerva Center, as well as at the Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace at the Hebrew University. This is not his first postdoctoral position, and not the only university nor country he has done research in, so we have lots to talk about. Before digging into Omri's story, I'd like to invite our listeners to check out our social media accounts with the handle at what to do with that, that is with the number two, and also subscribe to our YouTube channel to get updates on our upcoming guests and tips and advice by and for early career researchers. We'd also love to hear what you think about our podcast, blog posts and videos, so please do connect with us. But first, let me introduce to you Dr. Omri Grinberg. Omri started his academic journey with a bachelor's degree in education and supplementary studies at the Hebrew U of Jerusalem, and then continued at the university with a master's in cultural studies. For this, he spent some time at the Humboldt University in Berlin, and he managed to complete his degree summa cum laude. He was then a research fellow at the Cornell School of Criticism and Theory in Ithaca, New York, so it might not be strange to you to hear that he continued with a PhD at the Department of Anthropology and Center for Jewish Studies, this time at the University of Toronto. His dissertation's title is Writing Rights, Writing Violence, The Bureaucracy of Palestinian Testimonies in Israeli Human Rights NGOs. And since Omri became a doctor, he has been a postdoctoral fellow at Barilan University, Ben-Gurion University, Tel Aviv University, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, and now he's with us at the Minerva Center at the University of Haifa. And if that's not impressive enough, let me continue by mentioning that he has published quite a list of articles in journals such as Anthropologica and the Journal of Borderland Studies, and also book chapters, while he is currently working on a book of his own. So welcome to the What Are You Going To Do With That podcast, Omri. How are you doing? Hi, Dani. Thank you for having me and for the nice... Uh flattering introduction. You're welcome. I'm very glad to have you on board. And also congratulations on being the first anthropologist on our show. <laughs> so let's cheer to that. <laughs> oh, thank you. That, that uh, I'm cheering to that. I'm, it's still weird to me to call myself an anthropologist. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, we, we can say I'm the first anthropologist on the show. So what would you call yourself otherwise? Uh, as, you, as you introduced me, that I actually didn't do a, a, any degree in anthropology before uh, the PhD, um, so I never felt comfortable calling myself an anthropologist 
and I guess it's a bit weird, but until I actually got the PhD, I didn't feel like it was appropriate to uh, say that. And I think, you know, in the field, I don't know how it is in uh, other disciplines, but uh, certainly in anthropology, if you, you come from with a background in other uh, disciplines, um, then you sort of have to go through these, uh, you know, sorry for the uh, geeky pun, but you have to go through these uh, rites of passage uh, until you, you sort of qualify as an anthropologist. And then still, like, people would sometimes comment, you know, that uh, about how certain comments or certain ways of analyzing material isn't quite anthropological. So there's this disciplinary uh, gatekeeping, uh, and it becomes a bit more contentious in Israel also because there's um, the, the combination of uh, anthropology and sociology in most departments, uh, which isn't an Israeli thing. Uh, it it uh, is common in other places too. But then the borders are quite uh, sometimes very invisible and sometimes very visible. Um, so the title of an anthropologist is not something that um, is used that often in relation to me, but it's nice to hear. Okay, so I guess we should invite our listeners to read some of your work and then decide for themselves what to call you. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if you're ready, I'm ready to start with a few short questions. Are you? Sure, I'm ready. Great. First one is, how much time is there in between waking up and starting your day? And what do you do in that time? I think it's funny because coincidentally, I just looked at that today and was thinking if there's too much time or too little time. There's like the moment where I'm thinking, should I look at my phone? Shouldn't I look at my phone? And then I sort of roll up the uh, curtain or move the curtain aside so there's some sun in the room. And then I try to figure out if I have more time to sleep or not. And then sort of my superego kicks in and tells me that even if I have more time to sleep, I should still uh, wake up. So I think it's like maybe like it depends, but it's usually like seven minutes of self-negotiation until I finally pick myself up. <laughs> Sounds like you're not really a morning person then. Oh, I love mornings. It's just that that, that phase of, of uh, actually um, waking up is, you know, it's not fun sometimes okay and then um yeah. you said your daughter has the same sweater as you so you put on the same sweaters today uh and then yeah so, but she but yeah i was actually wearing something else and then i saw that she had the sweater so i had to change uh accordingly because we have to fit uh matching ugly christmas sweaters as someone called them <laughs> that's the rule i'm sorry that i said ugly i didn't mean to say ugly no, i meant fine. to say that it's this fine. is how they call it in general <laughs> Uh, but I really okay. love it. I hope people will be able okay. to see it in our picture later on Twitter. Um, okay, then the second question is, what is your favorite thing about the place where you live? The place as in the apartment or home or the area or city or what do you mean? I guess the first thing that comes to mind. The favorite part of where we live is that it's uh, quiet, but it's still close to many things that are important to us, like friends and family and cafes and work also um yeah and a 24-hour uh, grocery store so um so the combination of, of it being some quiet and um somewhat relaxed usually and between being central is something that i uh, like okay that sounds good especially in these pandemic times it's nice to be close to family and friends 
right? Exactly, yes. It, it proved uh, crucial during the second uh, of lockdown. And it will prove uh, essential in the forthcoming third lockdown. So Who knows? Who knows? I don't want to talk about yeah. it. <laughs> okay, uh, next question is, I don't think many people will have great memories of 2020, but what was the best thing that happened to you in this past year? I kind of enjoyed the second lockdown, I have to admit, because I thought the first lockdown was kind of like a um, kind of like a experimental lockdown where you see, do I enjoy this? Do I, is this a good thing for me to use my time with or that? And then, you know, there was this process, there was a, a gap between the first and second lockdown where you could um, think about what you did right and what you did wrong during the first lockdown. And then there was a second lockdown and then you could... Uh, apply the insights from the first lockdown. So I thought certain things that um, I and, and my family did during the second lockdown were, um, it was a good thing, like it was a good uh, process for us and myself subjectively uh, to go through. It worked out. Uh, I can't say, you know, that I don't wish for COVID to be over, um, but in terms of self processes and family processes, I thought it was uh, it had some certain uh, in, insightful benefits. So, well, I'm glad to hear that 2020 also had some good things, um, and I think yeah. we have to remember that too. Yeah, yeah. My next question is: What was the first ever job that you had? Oh, I was just talking about that job yesterday. That's funny. Um, I oh. I think I was 12 between the sixth and seventh grade. And I, um, it was sort of a job because I ended up not getting, getting paid, but I worked as an assistant at, um, the veterinarian of my, uh, since deceased cat. Oh, wow. So at, at, at a vet's, uh, um, clinic. Very interesting. Uh, for that summer. Yeah. For 12 year olds. So you weren't afraid of any blood or anything like that. I was super afraid. I don't know how I did it, actually. I, I have, like, I don't get how I'm, why I wanted to do that even. But yeah, I mean, I would be there like three times a week for a few hours, mostly doing like cleaning and running errands. And, um, I stopped prepping, uh, shots, uh, because one time I did it wrong and, and something went bad and it could have been much worse. So I decided I don't want that responsibility. Mm. Um, but that was like my first job and there was like this, it was unclear whether I'm supposed to get paid or not, but it was sort of implied that I would get some sort of payment right. at the end and I never got it. Oh. Like I never got any, any, um, I mean the, the experience was good, but it wasn't said like, you know, you'll do this just, you know, for the sake of the experience. It was sort of implied that there would be some sort of That's uh, a shame. monetary. Yeah. That's why it's so important that. Also, we talked about this a lot in other episodes with supervisors and uh, PhD candidates that from the start, whenever you sign a contract or decide to work with someone, especially for a longer time, you need to set expectations. So you both know yeah. what you're getting into and you know what you get at the end, right? Exactly. So this yeah. is a great example, nice. I feel. Very clever time. Very clever. <laughs> Last question of the short ones is, yeah. what is always on your Friday evening dinner table? In winter time, uh, at home, we very often, not always, but we very often do uh, what is called hamin or chulent. It's like a traditional Jewish, uh, what do you call it, slow-cooked pot roast or something. I don't know what it's called, how to explain. And in it's, English, stew. It's like a stew, right. slow-cooked stew, yeah. 
And it's nice in the winter. Yeah, exactly. So just in the winter time. Uh, usually we start like we start off the winter with a few like uh, children in a row, like a few weeks, and then we get tired of it. And then before the winter ends, we're like, oh wait, we stop doing children um, after the initial excitement. Um, <laughs> so that is that is what we uh, that is the most consistent uh, dish on a Friday. All right. Well, I'm glad you didn't say schnitzels. There's also schnitzel for my daughter. Yes, there is also schnitzel. Yes. There is another answer to that, which would be a kube, like kube soup. Okay. Uh, which in Jerusalem, it's like a Friday tradition. Uh, but sadly, I don't get to eat it that much. Before we continue with Omri's journey in academia, I would like to present to you our podcasting friend Elana and her podcast Dear Grad Student with this short promo. Hi. I'm Alana, and I'm a fourth-year PhD student. I'm more than likely re-editing that manuscript for the 22nd time, or maybe I'm in my fourth Zoom meeting today. Who can tell? But mostly, I'm probably working on my podcast. It's called Dear Grad Student, and it's a podcast for grad students to celebrate, commiserate, and support one another through grad school. Each week, I interview other grad students and academics about their experience from imposter syndrome, psychom, dealing with mentors, racism in academia, or, you know, all the other joys that come along with grad school school. Not a grad student? Maybe you're thinking about grad school. Maybe you just finished and you really want to reminisce about the painfully glorious days. Either way, I think you should come check it out. You can find the podcast at deargradstudent.buzzsprout.com, twitter.com slash deargradstudent, or on your favorite podcast app. New episodes are posted every Monday. And until next time, warmest regards, best wishes, sincerely, Alana. And now, let's get on with Omri's story. Well, I do feel like I got to know you a little bit better, and I know what you like to eat, especially in winter. But um, what you're really here for, and what we want to know, is how your academic journey developed. So I want to start at the very beginning with the BA. So you started with a BA in Education and Supplementary Studies. So would you care to explain what that supplementary part really is? Yeah, um, that's I, I always also in the CV I never know how to quite um, quite call that uh, path, um, but basically I think I think I don't know how it is today, but back then this was in the, like 2003. There, there was this what is called in Hebrew BA uh, Klali, so like general studies, um, which was which which meant that you take like a main like you study a main discipline. Uh, and then you take um, various uh, like units of courses in different uh, areas. So I actually had such a work, such a bad high school diploma, and such a bad uh, psychometry, like a psychometric exam, right. that I couldn't really get into any anything in the university. Uh, and I, what I really wanted to do was to be a special education teacher. And naively, I don't know why, but I thought that if I study education at the university, I could be a, um, a special education teacher, which is wrong. Like you can't, you have to go study special education, which is not something that you do at the university. Um, so I sort of went into education and didn't really know what else I could study. And then somehow uh, I was told that there's this, there's an option of doing basically whatever courses you, one is one wants to do, and it's called it's limudim ashlibim, so supplementary studies. And then you do like the main, like the main BA would be in education, and then basically anything else that is open to students 
or that uh, the professor is willing to have uh, outside students, uh, I could sign up to, which is an amazing way to study, I think. I mean, it's weird to me that it was like this hidden bureaucratic path uh, as a student. Um, so that's what I did. Again, mainly it started out because I couldn't study in any other department because like, I didn't have the grades uh, to get in. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, in hindsight, it was really like a great, uh, way for me because I, um, I was interested in many things and I could, I could, uh, sort of have a taste of a lot of different, um, courses and areas and disciplines and, and education itself is, is, uh, multidisciplinary. So it was a very good BA in terms of general education. That's very interesting. In a way you were able to build your own program, right? This way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it, it speaks to how uh, universities don't think that students can make up their own minds and try to structure everything. So they, so, so the general BA, which was sort of like the common path then, would have meant that I had to do like these blocks of courses. And usually the blocks had like maybe one course that I was interested in and then the rest wasn't. So I could just end the... And, and with this supplement, as you said, I could just structure everything as I wanted it to be. Okay, so even though you didn't have the grades to directly study something that you maybe rather would have done, and also um, not really knowing what to do with that first agreement and maybe picking and choosing classes here and there, you still managed to get this far. So it's very interesting, I think, for our listeners to realize that um, everything is possible, almost everything, especially if you really want it. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean... So, uh, and I wanted to to do like a, I wanted then after after like the first year or so I thought I would go rather go into psychology and be uh, do something with that but it was it seemed like it would be too much work um, to do so I don't know if anything is possible but certain things seemed possible or possible yeah and there's also different ways to get uh, to where you are now right yeah that's very true yeah. All right. So you continued directly after the, finishing the BA with an MA, also in Jerusalem. Yeah. But now you changed to cultural studies. Mm. So how did education and cultural studies connect? Did you manage to do some classes in this during your BA or how did that, what pushed you in that direction? Yeah. So this was, again, quite uh, coincidental that uh, I was drawn to the more uh, critical areas of, of, uh, of what was the courses and the units offered in education. So that would be, say, sociology of education and, and certain, and philosophy of education. So there were, you say we had uh, psychology of education and then the more, say, quantitative studies and, and social sciences. And then I was more drawn to, um, to the interpretive or qualitative, um, uh, fields. Uh, and then in sociology of education, what I was mainly interested in were the more, again, more critical, uh, and ethnographic studies. Uh, and then in the supplemental studies, I was, I, I continued from the, from the, what I learned through sociology of education. And I took like, uh, basically, yeah, cultural studies courses, like intro to critical theory and, and like introduction to Israeli culture, which was sort of organized, uh, in relation to key issues that we also studied in sociology, sociology of education. And then that was what I was drawn to, but in the BA, because it was mainly education, I didn't get to expand on that that much. Uh, and I wanted to learn more about those things. Uh, so when I heard about the program in cultural studies, 
I, I thought that sounds like exactly what I would want to do. Uh, and also it had the benefit of, as you mentioned, it regarding the BA in cultural studies, at least back then, you could essentially study whatever you wanted. Um, like you take whatever courses you want and if, if things work out, then you, you study around, uh, the, the, the research thesis topic. So that's sort of what I did. I didn't think about like a career path. It was just interesting for me and I really wanted to do it. I didn't say I want to be an academic, which is honestly pretty much the only thing you can, uh, like the career path with that degree, other than if it's interesting for one. So that's what I did. Like it was just a matter of passion to, to study more. And the program was amazing. Um, so it was a good, good choice. Because the program also allowed you to spend a summer at the Humboldt University in Berlin, right? Oh, yeah. And there you focused yeah. very much on Jewish studies. And I hope I'm not rude. Um, and please tell me if you don't want to answer this question. But I'm just so very curious. What brought an Israeli to Germany to study Jewish studies? Well, this is the, it's the Leo Bexam University. Uh, I was in the first year when this, when this, uh, program, the, like the prog program launched that year. And again, like it was super random that I was there. Like I took a course with, uh, with a German professor teaching philosophy here at the Hebrew University. And he said, One, one day, like he came to class and he said, oh, I was asked if I have any students that I would recommend to go to this summer school in Berlin. Um, and we, we were three students in that course and one of them didn't come that week. So we were just two students in that course. And he said, would you two want to go? And we said, yeah. So we went to study Jewish studies in Berlin, but that was like, that was really amazing. Like it was also coincidental, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, but it ended up being a great experience in terms of being exposed to, to non-Israeli academia. Uh, we had professors from uh, North America and, um, and Europe, uh, like German and the UK and, uh, and Canada and the US. And there were, uh, other, I met friends there who are still, I'm still in touch with, uh, who are not necessarily in academia at all. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. So the, it was Jewish studies, but in a sense, it was uh, it was Jewish history of of Europe and in Germany. Uh, it was very enlightening in, in terms of also the present life of, of uh, Jewish life uh, and activism in in Europe. And that was your very first taste of studying abroad, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I went abroad with my partner for her own stuff. Like she studied abroad, so. Um, during her studies so but it was my my own first experience yeah like first-hand experience yes and it was good uh, and the program was good like you mentioned you finished mm. your master's summa cum laude congratulations mm. on thank that. you yeah um but it took another two years before you actually landed a phd position at yeah. a university now overseas so yeah. what happened in these two years and at what point did you decide i'm going to do a phd so actually it was more like four years. Uh, the, the, I mean, the CV notes that I finished uh, in 2010, but initially, but I was actually almost finished with the, with the masters in 2008. But then we moved, uh, for my partner's studies. We spent two years in Sweden. Okay. Can I ask what she studied? Yes. She's a graphic designer and illustrator. And she was, she got accepted to this, uh, um, great, great program in, uh, in, in a school called Kunstfak in uh, Stockholm. Beautiful. 
Uh, so we went there. So everything was sort of like delayed when, when, while we were there. I mean, my own finalizing the thesis mainly. Um, so it was more like for four years between um, the MA and the PhD. And then when we came back from Sweden, I almost immediately started uh, studying for, for a PhD. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say where, uh, but here, like in Israel. So in 2007, I was in this Berlin school, but in this Leo Bexam University. In 2008, I was in the Cornell, uh, at the Cornell School of Criticism and Theory. Um, and then I, I sort of saw how seriously people took graduate studies, uh, abroad. Uh, and when I started the PhD here in Israel, I didn't feel like it was the same level of commitment and mainly that there wasn't it, it's not like today, especially in Minerva, which is, I think is, is, uh, fantastic that there's this cohort, also at Truman at the Hebrew U. Um, there's a cohort of graduate students and, and the universities and faculties are much more, um, attuned to making sure that, uh, PhD students and even MA students have this sort of like professional academic circle. That wasn't the case in 2010. So I spent a few months thinking about like in studying, taking a couple of courses and talking to um, who I thought would be my supervisors. And then it just didn't feel right. Like it didn't feel like this wasn't the sort of PhD that I wanted to do. And then I got a job offer to work for an NGO. Like I did some freelance for NGOs before that. And I got a job offer to work also in Israel, in Israel. Yes. Like human rights NGOs. And I got a job offer uh, to work full time or 75% for an NGO. And then I said, okay, you know what, like this feels like a good time to do something uh, else and see how I feel about things uh, down the road. But within three months of working at the NGO, I decided that I do want to do a PhD. So it didn't last long. Okay. Yeah. You did want to get back into it. Uh, just not the program that you started with in Israel wasn't what you expected from it. Uh, yeah. So instead of like pushing through for years and maybe not enjoying it that much, um, you decided to take a break yeah. and see what the other options are. And then overseas was what you started looking at, right? Um, yes and no. Uh, I looked at programs here also. And, uh, but yeah, but the main, the main uh, effort uh, was to find a good program uh, outside. And I had some, at the end, I had one option here. Part of the issue with not studying in Israel was the issue of funding, right? Like, you know, I'm, mm -hmm. you sort of have to work full time <clears throat> to manage here. Uh, and there weren't, there were much less uh, funding options back then. And I didn't think my odds of getting some of them were realistic. And uh, looking at uh, uh, universities in, in North America, but also in uh, Europe, it seemed like there were way more options of, of like a proper program and funding. Uh, and yeah, at the end of the day, I had like uh, University of Toronto and two other options. And Toronto seemed like the best options in terms of like the best, had the best uh, uh, overall setup in terms of both academics and the city and moving as a, uh, a couple and um, other uh, aspects. So, yeah. So I assume, uh, because you already mentioned it, that you managed to fund yourself through a grant or a scholarship that came with that PhD program in Toronto. 
Yes. So um, should I expand? Like, there's a lot to say about funding in, in Canada. So do you want me to talk at length about that? Or? Yeah, give us some tips and advice. That would be nice. <clears throat> so in, in Canada, um, first of all, when you get accepted to a PhD program and even some MA programs, uh, there's funding. Like there's basic funding that uh, covers tuition and um, some living expenses. And then it's not a lot. Like I can't say that you can, one can save money or live a luxurious life. Uh, but in Toronto, it seemed like it was, it was like, it was fine. Like it, it wasn't too, too, too little uh, to survive after getting that. Like when, once you get accepted, you sort of get funding automatically. But then there are all these, there, there are all these additional scholarships and fellowships that you, one can get, um, both for like a, four year, like a duration or, or for the extent of the program, uh, but also like one off sort of, um, funding, uh, schemes. So I didn't even know about it. Like, right. You apply and, and, and there's, you know, that there's like the basic funding, but then once you get accepted, all these additional doors open to additional funding. Um, I think that's the case also in, in, in some U.S. universities, uh, and in the UK, uh, certainly, but uh, in Canada, it seems like that because you have like province, so you have like province, like Ontario, Quebec, and then but there's also like the Canadian programs, and then you have like different funding programs like Trudeau and Vanier. So there's all these different funding schemes that are highly competitive, and I'm sure now they're even way more competitive because I think more students go to Canada once, like since the U.S. You know since. 2016 and everything um, that went on in the U.S. since then. Uh, so it's highly competitive, but there are different options. And also like the Canadian sort of, you know, accepting uh, foreigners and, and outsiders is it's like a very nice and welcoming program. So in terms of healthcare and 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 the visa. So so once you get accepted to once you get as myself as a student, as a Ph.D. student, my partner could work there without, you know, having to apply to anything uh, special. It's like automatic. The, the family can can work and study there. Um, so so that was very um, uh, inviting and and comfortable in terms of that. So you could recommend others to look into that. Oh yeah, I mean, I get quite often people asking me if uh, you know if about uh, Toronto and Canada in general, and. Many of them uh, foolishly choose to go to the U.S., uh, but I think like that Canada is, is the way better option, especially for people who who uh, have families. Uh, that's that's key. Uh, not only, I mean, my program was academically incredible, uh, but certainly in terms of, of uh, people who are, if you want to stay long long term, or if you have certain family needs. I think Canada is, is a fantastic choice. So can I ask what your wife did while she was with you in Canada? Did she manage to continue with her studies or her job there? Yeah. So ironically, my, my wife, when my first year of the PhD, my wife moved. She got a fellowship in New York. So, okay. Yeah. So the first year we spent uh, long distance or traveling. I mean, Toronto and New York isn't that bad. It's like 12, 12 hour bus uh, right. So it's not that difficult. Um, but she got this really good artist fellowship in New York, which was an opportunity that she could miss. So she spent 
uh, most of our first year she spent there. Uh, then the second year, she also had like an artist fellowship in Toronto. Uh, there's a there's a university in Toronto called Ryerson, and they have a, a, a the world's largest uh, photo archive uh, in Ryerson. So she had an artist fellowship there, and then she was pregnant, and we had our daughter. So that sort of took up most of our time. Right. Okay. Yeah. That sounds really nice. Sounds like a like a success for the both of you. Moving, moving is is difficult as uh, for in any situation, I think. And there's, I was naive and thought, you know, because we had that experience of moving to Sweden, I thought, you know, moving Toronto to Toronto would be easy. Uh, but there's still all these cultural shocks that you one one experiences uh, and attempts to find new friends and find some sort of networks of support. So it's never easy. But I do think that uh, Toronto is certainly. Uh, at least back then was, uh, and we're talking like 2012. So Toronto was a relatively comfortable and welcoming place to move to. Okay. Yeah, of course, it's it's never easy to move out of your home country and to get used to something new, even though, you know, in Canada, everyone in most places speaks English. Yeah. Um, it, it compared to like maybe moving to a European country and having to learn a different language. Um, and we spoke a lot also with other uh, guests who've moved for their PhDs to a different country, about finding that group of peers or group of friends or support. Um, and that it's difficult to get out there and, and build that up from the ground. Um, but we've gotten some nice tips and uh, most of them did manage. So it's possible. Yeah, it, it is possible. I, but I think people, or at least I did, and it sounds to me like other people, underestimate how tough it can be definitely something to think yeah. about very much yeah. yeah all right thanks for your honesty sure um after asking about the program itself and the funding and the practical things i wanted to ask a little bit about your research because your research focuses if i understand correctly on the representation of violence in bureaucratic and legal interactions between human rights ngos and the state and you examine the ethics of cultural adaptations of testimony and struggles over arch archival issues in Israel, Palestine. And that is a sensitive area to do research on. So I wanted to ask, how do you deal with that? And how do you ensure your integrity as a researcher? Uh, good question. Um, I uh, had a presentation in the anthropology in, in University of Haifa um, uh, about 10 days ago. And that helped me understand how I go about these things, which wasn't necessarily a conscious uh, path, but it sort of morphed into uh, being from, from, yeah, I mean, my MA research was highly contentious topic. It was about Palestinian child labor and how it's represented in Israel. And I focused on a specific type of child labor which is children who work in, in uh, major traffic intersections. And there is child labor of Palestinians within Israel. And it's not a super common. I mean, there's not thousands of kids who work in Israel, like Palestinians who come from Gaza or the West Bank into Israel and work. There, there aren't thousands of them, but at any given moment, there are a few hundreds of them. So if you take into consideration that this has been going on for at least 20 years, like since the start of the second intifada, then you realize that there's been thousands, thousands of, of 
Palestinian children working uh, within Israeli territories. And working on that topic, I realized how, like, how difficult it is for people to hear strong criticism about things that they care about or things that they are not aware of and find hard to believe, right? If I say, you know, that, that Israel does something or the Palestinians do something and one is a ardent supporter of either Israeli or Palestinian causes, then it's hard for them to digest that. And it's not necessarily because they're bad people, it's just because they haven't been exposed to certain, certain extreme things that do happen around us. So I presented that MA research quite a lot and got I published a few studies from it. And I think part of the reason why it got some positive attention and results is that it's somewhat of an, I wouldn't say it's an easy topic, like, okay, so again, Palestinian child labor and how it's represented in Israel. And I focused on a specific type of child labor, which is children who work in, in uh, major traffic intersections. So they clean windshields or, or ask for money or sell various... I have to say, I have seen them at certain intersections. Yeah, yeah, it still exists. It's, it's, very, it's, very, um, it's a consistent phenomenon. So this topic is... The way I talked about it, first of all, it was highly analytical, right? The way I, I focused on analyzing the phenomena itself rather than trying to make big claims about, I don't know, justice and right or wrong and national interest and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It was very specific in a way, but also I tried to make it sort of theoretically sound so it would speak to other contexts outside of the very specific one that I'm talking about. Um, and so that sort of made it more easy, or not easy, but it sort of made it more, uh, you know, it could circulate in a certain way had I talked about, had I chosen a different topic that and talked about it in another way that would make people shut their eyes and ears and not want to hear about it, right? Because first of all, it's children. And again, it's, it's so people relate to that and there's less sort of uh, contention around, you know, good or bad. Um, so that was, th those were sort of the ways I, I, I managed to, to speak about such a difficult, uh, topic. For the PhD, so again, I had this talk in, in anthropology in Haifa 10 days ago, uh, and, and I had a conversation with one of the professors who attended the talk, or, you know, was on Zoom, uh, uh, for the talk. And again, she, she gave me this, she reflected on how I presented uh, the topic of my PhD, which is about Palestinians' testimonies in Israeli human rights NGOs. And she said also that it was just because I was focused on the materials themselves, uh, rather than try and say, like, constantly refer to certain moral or national values. Um, so I think if one does what I hope I do, which is rigorous uh, academic research from whatever discipline, and sort of uh, you remain attentive to the materials themselves or so the empirical data that one has, um, then it's, I wouldn't say again that it's easier to talk about it and it doesn't mean that the topic isn't contentious and there's a lot of tension around it, but it's easier to stand uh, on, stand my ground, right? If someone says, 
you're, you know, you're representing the NGOs that you're studying. I say, no, I'm not like, I'm highly critical of certain things the NGOs do. I do not speak for them. Uh, but you know, I can't say that because it's just not true. So it's not, it's not about taking sides. It's about sort of being truthful to the materials themselves. Of course, that's always the, the main part of the research, right? To be that neutral researcher. Well, which is, is not, it's not an easy thing to do in Israel Palestine and people constantly push towards making, uh, making certain claims and certain statements. And that's like the. Mm -hmm. That's the difficult part. That's the trying to avoid being pinned into a certain uh, perspective. Okay, so after you finished your doctorate, you have landed quite a few postdoc positions. And can you give us some tips on, on how to land such a position, which I understand isn't that easy? Is there something that anyone who is doing their PhD right now should already think of when they want to do a postdoc following that? Oh, yeah, I got this tip. I, I'd like to give, to give the credit to my very smart supervisor, Alejandro Paz, or to one of my mentors, Rebecca Stein, who are fantastic, give fantastic advice. But uh, I'm sorry that I can't remember which one of them it was or if it was someone else altogether. Uh, but the, I, the advice I got was that it's never too early to prepare for a job position or a postdoc application. So like if people are being teaching, like working as teaching assistant research, first of all, it's, it's good to be actively pursue academic experience. So I did a lot, a lot, a lot of research assistance work. And I remember like I had peers as in people who were pursuing academic careers who uh, looked at me like I was some sort of sucker, like a fire, you know, that I'm doing all these, you know, menial labor type things. But come on, I mean, it was fantastic experience. Like, I, first of all, it just showed people that I'm serious. And also, I gained so much experience doing all these, you know, uh, laborious sort of academic uh, chores and tasks that um, a lot of people don't get experience working in. And it proved super useful during research that I could, like, that I could organize immense amounts of data uh, as I did say, as part of my past research uh, assistance work. Right. And then also there's the benefit of if you do a good job, then the person you were uh, help or working for could write a reference letter. And if it's not someone who supervised you, uh, then it's an additional uh, letter that you can count on, right? And it's impressive uh, that you can get someone who's not from the university you studied in and is a big name to support you. And they give great advice and they're good intellectual conversation so research assistantships are something that is is maybe looked uh, down upon but is is really i thought was really good experience for me um and teaching assistantships or teaching courses even a good uh email from a student like a student saying oh this was a nice course thank you professor or thank you, uh, whatever, uh, then it's, it's, it's good to, to save that for future reference. Um, so those like small things that uh, we can look like we sort of ignore, they're really useful in building a certain case for one as a serious scholar. And then for when, when approaching the postdoc phase, I, I sort of wasn't afraid to do the legwork and try to find things for myself. 
So it wasn't like I applied to Minerva right out of the PhD and got it or applied to anywhere else. Uh, I applied to a few things and didn't get anything. But then I sort of started slowly building uh, up. So what I did was I got this advice. Again, I can't recall who said that, but it was brilliant. That to look at who has active um, active funding from the Israeli Science, Science Foundation. To, so to look through everyone who has uh, funding from humanities and so and again I have the benefit of of uh, being quite interdisciplinary so I can work with a right. relatively uh, wide range of people uh, which is a good thing to have uh, in in most cases I think um, so so I looked at the ISF like at the list of people and then I literally like this was I remember not believing that I'm doing that. But it ended up being a great thing. I sent an email to each and every scholar I thought my knowledge might somehow be helpful uh, or that I might work with them, might be able to work with them and saying, I'm finishing a PhD. I'm looking for a postdoc. Can I, might it be possible to work with you? Now, I don't know how many of those I sent. It wasn't that much, but it was like maybe around 20. I think maybe five answered <laughs> and at least someone did <laughs> three said no off the bat two said maybe okay okay two of the maybe so one of the maybes so he told me call me let's set something up and it sounded like great and then when i talked to him it sounded like he really wanted me to do some super like he really wanted me to do like the most basic research assistantship stuff and for basically almost no wages. It would be called a postdoc, but it wouldn't be a postdoc by any sense, like by any, like it wouldn't be a postdoc. It would just be bad. Again, something yeah. you weren't looking for. But to have that title of, you know, postdoc here and there, uh, you know, it sounded kind of like maybe I should maybe consider it. Uh, but then the other maybe, so I, I, so I emailed 20, got heard back from five and two of them one was the you know sort of precarious labor type thing and then the other one said yeah i mean it it's it, this was true story she was the last email i sent like she was the last one on, on the list uh because she seemed the most unreasonable for for uh, irrelevant and and i was just so tired and i was like okay fine like this is the last one and it worked out. I worked with her. I still work with her. It was great experience. Yeah. Still, still great experience. And I think having those, you know, again, so that, so this was the Ben Gurion one with it's Sarai Aoni, who does really, I can't, but like her research, she does research on archives of, of, uh, sexual violence and, um, peace organizations. And it's like really, I can't think of a more important research going on here and it's it's uh it has so much relevance also outside of academia so i'm very fortunate to have been part of that and then from those sort of like postdoc that i basically structured or you know to the kindness and, and intellectual uh, curiosity of others managed to structure then i think i built on that to to uh to be a, a viable candidate for other uh postdocs that leads to the next question, which is the last question, um, because now we got to the point where you are now. So we're thinking ahead. And the question is, 
what are you going to do with that? With the PhD, with these postdocs, do you plan on staying in academia? Why yes or why no? I plan on trying to stay in academia, but once I can't provide for my family or I suffer too much or I suffer at all, I'm not going to stick around. Like that's the, that's, I'm not, I'm not going to put myself or my family through anything uh, too demanding that uh, doesn't, doesn't allow us to live the sort of life and, and have the mental and physical health that we want to have. Uh, and honestly, I don't understand people who pursue that uh, path at all costs. I don't think from people around me who I care a lot about and I see, I think those years of trying really hard, even if they work out, it comes at such a high cost that I don't think I don't want to, I, I know I don't want to do that. Um, so my perspective is that I'm trying what I can and I work really hard and I try to put out quality work. I want to, I hope to have a book out from my dissertation. And if that would be enough to get a position, then that's great. But if not, then I'm happy to do a whole bunch of other things also. So, Yeah, there is a plan B. Uh, uh, no. I mean, there, there's, there's a plan B in the sense that there, that it's fine that there will be a, a path B, uh, but there isn't right. a obvious uh, plan B yet because I still have like a bit more uh, rope in terms of postdocs and stuff. So it's okay. Okay. Well, I would like to finish up with some more short questions, uh, but because of the timing, we're going to try to keep them very short. So let's try. What was the most important conference that you've been to? The fir very first conference I ever been to was a like super serious Israel-Palestine studies conference in Colombia and CUNY in New York. And there were like super serious people there. And it was really... And, and interesting insightful and was right before BDS really kicked in and into academia. So there were conversations there that today wouldn't happen. And it was really eye-opening in, in terms of, of academic work and how to like uh, how to go about. Another one uh, that I should note is a really like a huge association conference I went to like three years ago and it was really not a good experience. Like it was so disconnected from the politics around like hmm. of where it happened. And like, there was such a gap between how fancy uh, the hall of the talk was and how awful the content, like talking about, you know, I don't know, like genocides and, and trauma and stuff. But then you're in this place with chandeliers and, and all these right. fancy things. So the, the, the discrepancy between the two was just really hard to, to, uh, uh, contend with so that's that's important in the negative sense like it made me think about like how uh, academic conferences are, are do not necessarily have any positive value in the world okay and who has impressed you most with what they have accomplished can I pick like three people uh, let's take two two and a half <laughs> okay Go um, I just read like for it's 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 for my research, but it's related to Minerva because it's uh, Ali's, Ali's Salzburger's, uh, Ali Salzburger's uh, 
mother who passed away, uh, Lota Selzberger. And I read like, so she founded uh, an NGO in the, ni- in the 1980s, um, so, which is related to my research. So I read about her. Uh, and Elie is, is the head of Minerva, so it's sort of related. And she did amazing things in her life. Like she basically, I think, changed the perception in Jerusalem about who the people of the city are and how Jewish Israelis can be active uh, uh, in reaching out and helping and, and making sort of like the city a more um, moral space to live in. Uh, and also, like, she was a huge figure in terms of, of uh, establishing a civil society and uh, non-governmental organizations in Israel in general, uh, in addition to an academic career and uh, raising a family and other things. So uh, I just, like, a few weeks ago, I read a bit about her, and I thought that was, like, I, I, amazing, like, being able to do all those things. Um there's two other people I'd like to mention. So one is Emily Pines, who's a professor in, in, in Ireland, uh, who does, like, who does this, like, she has a book, like, a, like, a, you know, like, uh, short stories or essays that was like a number one bestseller and got rave reviews. So she managed to do that and also does brilliant academic work and also has like public projects about testimonies. Uh, in Ireland and really she deals with really brutal topics, but she manages to, to, uh, do have a lot of output. And the last one, I'm sorry, is, uh, someone who passed away quite recently, whose name is Michael Silverstein, who was like the biggest sociolinguistic, uh, scholar ever. Like he, he basically made the field of sociolinguistics what it is today. Uh, and apparently he was a super nice and kind person while doing it. So. Okay, sounds like very three very important uh, people who've done some work in academia, but also outside of it and reaching the public. So that's something you spoke about before. So now it all connects and comes together. Um, but my last question is, how do you relax after a hard day of work? I try to um, spend time with my daughter and my partner. Uh, a little, as little WhatsApp messages as possible. Um, eating something tasty and fun, um, doing some exercise maybe together and either watching, uh, I mean, after, or well, with my daughter watching some, some fun cartoon that she likes or, and then, uh, watch <coughs> either like a, uh, RT movie. Uh, or RuPaul's Drag Race, which is very artsy in its own way. Really? You're the second one who said that during this question. What? RuPaul's Drag <laughs> so Race? So I should start watching it, definitely. Uh, my, my partner watched it, watches it, like, watched it for a while, and then uh, I thought, uh, reality TV, but then I got into it. And... <laughs> nice. Okay, well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today, Omri. And I wish you the best of luck with the continuation of your academic journey and the writing of your book. And a special thanks goes to the audience, of course. Thank you guys for listening again. If you haven't done so yet, please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to our YouTube channel, where you will find more PhD tips and advice. See you there.
So you're working on this book? Do you have a title for it yet? I don't. I don't know. I don't. I don't really have a title because um, apparently it's it's unclear if if you can use the same title from the dissertation or something similar, or if it has to change. So I'm still like I like to use the some of the title, but I have some other options. So I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we'll be looking forward to it in the future. Thank you.